1: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to War Room. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Associate Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and Editor-in-Chief of War Room. So these days we hear a lot about the all-volunteer force and the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the modern American military. But we know that all of these integrations have a long history, and so I'm excited today to have Dr. Tanya Roth in the studio to talk about her new book, Her Cold War, Women in the U.S. Military, 1945 to 1980. Now, Tanya has actually been in the studio with us before, and so I hope you'll take a listen to our other podcast about a case about transgender marriage in the Women's Army Corps. It's just one of my favorites. Uh, Tanya holds a PhD from Washington University in St. Louis and currently is a teacher at the Mary Institute and St. Louis County Day School, or MICDS, which is an independent school in St. Louis, Missouri. Tanya, welcome to War Room. It's good to be here. Hi, Jackie. All right. So I'm super happy to have you back. And now with a published uh, book ready to ready to go, it hit the press in 2021 uh, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Press. Um, and so I'd like to just open up with first to congratulations on publishing a book during a pandemic. And second, uh, to ask you what the book is about. Thank you. Um,
0: this is like the highlight of my year and possibly my decade. Well, We'll get another book out, so maybe not my decade, but we'll try. (laughs) Um, So this book is the culmination of a long time, more time than I ever would have thought. Um, But it's all about what happened starting in 1948 when after World War II, uh, leaders in the U.S. military said, well, what if we did use women full time after the war? What if we said that, yeah, we could use women in certain roles in the military to support national defense? There seems to be some tensions with the Soviet Union. We don't want to draft men all the time necessarily. Um, yeah, let's let women in. And uh, over the next, I really cover the next twenty five ish years, more or less. I mean, to nineteen eighty is a little longer than that. But if you think about it, as uh, you know, two and a half, three decades. Um, those are the years when. Everything that's really done sets the groundwork for women's roles long term. It looks so much different in so many ways for women's service today in the military, but the things that happen in that time period really go a long way in setting up how Americans feel about women in national defense, what proper roles are for women um, and creating policy that still affects women in the military
1: today. Yeah, so as I was reading, I think that that idea that this is, a really pivotal moment in telling women's uh, women's history in the US military uh is, is so clear because we know of course women served and have served um before, right, 1940 1945, they were involved uh clearly in both of the world wars. Uh they had been in different, you know, in, in different capacities before, and certainly women continue to serve after. Uh but this this period is so fundamental and sort of shifting attitudes and policies and all sorts of things. I think it's a really interesting, interesting moment. Um, I love to talk about origin stories for books. Um, And so I'd like to ask you sort of how you, how you settled on your, you know, on your topic, because this came out of your dissertation. I know it came out of, of some earlier work as, as well. So what, what sort of drew you to the topic? And what, why did the book take the shape that it did?
0: I love thinking about origin stories, too. And uh, this one, I feel like has, has two points. And I'm going to take it back to the very first one, because if it hadn't been for um, an undergraduate seminar on gender World War One, two topics I knew nothing about when I was 20 years old. Um, the professor that fall had set up, Maybe it was even in the spring. I'm not even sure anymore what time of year that course was. Uh, But I wanted to take a seminar. I wanted to write an undergraduate thesis because I thought that would be really, really cool and uh she asked us to read Vera Brittain's Testament of Youth and Vera Brittain was uh became known as a peace activist between the world wars she was a young british woman uh from a fairly well-to-do place before world war 1 and her experience in world war 1 like so many other women of her generation in england and across europe was that so many men that she knew just died and had their lives totally destroyed in world war one i had never thought about women in war women in the military and vera britain never joined the military but i was really drawn to this idea of women doing things that frankly when i was growing up i never thought of growing up in the 80s and the 90s was not really aside from desert storm not really a time when um Americans had a really full-on view of what it was like for the United States to be at war. There was just this brief blip of conflict. And then, of course, um, Bosnian interventions in the 90s as well, but... The end of the Cold War was happening. That was more of what I knew. So this idea of women being asked or volunteering to do something so different from their lives—something um, about that just really struck me. And I ended up doing a semester project on women who volunteered as nurses. Um, they weren't really nurses. They had about six to eight weeks of medical training, and that was it. They knew how to roll bandages, and they just did whatever they had to do. And that really stuck out at me too. That. Um, this drastic change in women's lives and then they go back to quote unquote normal although it was never normal um i kind of thought that was it i wrote my thesis the following year it's like 50 pages it's not very good <laughs> but <laughs> i loved reading the primary sources so i think the real benefit from that is that i became interested in women's history and the experiences that women had and the way they talk about their own experiences through um writing novels about it or writing diaries about it those the sort of personal angle and I wanted to go to graduate school someday, I thought I would get a PhD in English. And then I was like, I'm still interested in these women. What, yeah. what happens next? <laughs> so uh, when I got to graduate school, I knew I wanted to look a little later, what was the next chapter in the story after World War One. And when I found out that, okay, a lot of people were working on World War Two, or it felt like it. I, now I would say maybe not as much as I thought. There but still
1: seemed to be some gaps, right?
0: There are, right? But that was, I went, mm, okay, World War Two, people do that. What else is there? And I happened to come across a book that was published that fall about women in the Korean War period. And one of the things that struck me was somehow I hit upon very early, this is literally my first semester of my PhD program, um, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act and the fact that it offered women equal pay. I'm like, wait, hold on. I don't know a lot about second wave feminism, which is really the 70s, or I didn't. I didn't know a lot about second wave feminism. I knew it came later. I also knew nobody else was getting equal pay if they were female in the U.S. in the middle of of the 20th century. And that just stood out to me. <clears throat> so I had that on the one side, and then I was really interested in what are women doing? Um, this moved me outside of the nursing uh, arena, because nursing was something that was a uh, much more acceptable feel for women. So I was really interested in what are the things women were doing outside of nursing, the sorts of jobs that had been previously unacceptable, and what was up with this equal pay thing. Um, so the first chapter of my book actually as the oldest one, it has
1: existed in some variations <laughs> since my first year of graduate school. <laughs> so I think this, this actually leads me like perfectly into the, to one of the big questions I have for you, which is this, um, this tension or this pull that we see when we talk about military integrations, whether it's about gender or race, sexuality, religion, any of these things. So often I think the, the conversation is, framed in terms of whether the military is leading or lagging society as a whole, right? Um, Is it ahead of the curve behind the curve, you know, right with it. And I think one of the things, and the equal pay piece is, is a really stark reminder of that on the, on the women's uh, integration side. But it struck me as I was reading your book that, that your story really complicates this sort of dichotomy of leading or lagging uh, that the answer isn't, you know, one or the other. And so I'm interested to know what you think your your book and, and your work tells us as a whole about this relationship between the military and, and broader like social and cultural forces.
0: I really love the way you think about that, is whether the military is leading or lagging. And I wonder if some of that really... Uh in the months since I was refining this and thinking about it, so really for the last year and a half, I've been thinking a lot about this, but in different terms. Um, And it seems to me that we talk about leading or lagging. We're looking at it very much from our own perspectives, right? Like what we think right now, and we're looking back and we're, and we're trying to understand and interpret. I think a lot of times we're coming at that with what our own definitions of say equality, what that might mean. And, um, uh, so I've been thinking a lot about how just that idea of equality changes. So I think you're right. It's 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 so complicated because equal pay. I looked at that and was like, whoa, that's huge. But for members of Congress, that was like, that was not a big deal at all. Like it just it was a practical thing. It was about trying not to have a bureaucracy that was out of hand. And even uh, and it did appeal to women, but not as much as. If, from what I've seen, the women I've spoken to, the oral histories I've read, certainly the pay and benefits were absolutely a huge reference. But I've never found anybody who got into the military in these decades because they were feminists and wanted to create specific change, right? So um, they're all coming at it for, oh, hey, there are these opportunities here. Um, And it definitely was uh, there's certain women who said I couldn't afford to go to college and here was a job where I was allowed to be as a woman and it was something different I could travel I could make good money but they weren't necessarily looking at it the way I was where I went and said oh wow equal pay that's huge so like it was a job with money yeah, where and we interesting look at places. And it, we say
1: equal pay is early like you said it's it's predating second wave feminism by, right. by quite a bit um and equal pay for equal work is such a like centerpiece. Of, of that feminist discourse. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting, interesting point that our, our very definitions of equality change over time. Uh, and you, you, I think you do a really nice job in the, in the book with this talking about right. Difference equality based on different gender difference and gender sameness. And we see that. So I think it's, it's really grounded in, in a lot of the, the language that, that, that is, that is familiar. And at the same time, it really prompts, I think, the reader to to think about women's own experiences in the way that they talk about it yeah. instead of this, like, you know, after the fact um, examination of what was what was going on. And the, the pragmatism is evident throughout. Right. Right. Uh, like you said, like we can't we don't want to have two different pay scales because that will be annoying um, and yeah. <laughs> in a bureaucratic <laughs> nightmare.
0: And they figure there's so many other ways that they can, their, big, their bigger worries involve like women being in command of men and whether women will get pregnant and, and how do they handle women being on their periods and what will the women wear and uh, things like that. But, but it is interesting You know, that the 40s are very pragmatic and even... After that, that pragmatism continues. But there is a moment in the 70s that the pressure from outside of the military does seem to have an impact. Because at that point, you know, in the 40s, members of Congress, when they're thinking about authorizing this legislation to let women in, they're thinking pragmatically, they're thinking very conservatively. And we see that again in the 70s, but in the 70s, because of the Equal Rights Amendment, because of the women's Mm -hmm. movement that's come up, that's a moment where they're like, no, we got to make some changes here. This is not going to cut it anymore. So that's a moment where that tension about um, leading or I'm so sorry, I completely forgot the other word. Leading or lagging lagging. or
1: simultaneous to or whatever. Yeah,
0: it sort of of seems like, no, if you don't do this, you're going to be lagging behind and this isn't going to work. But it's a, it's a much more, it's a higher stakes moment for the U.S. military as a whole with Vietnam still happening and right. the discourse around that in a way that there was certainly discourse about the military after World War II, but totally different conversations happening in those two decades.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a really nice, um, nice contrast that you, that you draw there. Your book um, strikes me as very clearly a work, and I think I think you would describe it this way, too. If you wouldn't, let me know. Um, but it's a work of women's history. Uh, and I think this, as I think about the the field of American history, as I think about military history and where we've been and where, we, where we're going and maybe uh, what the future looks like, it seems like we have, in some ways, left women's history uh, behind as we've moved to talk about gender history or um, sort of queer history and things like that and i'm I'm interested to know how you how you think about your work as a work of women's history and as a work of military history and what what the two might have to say to each other that's distinct from gender history or, or queer history
0: that's a great question definitely i I see this as as women's history and I, I always have it is also military history but it's also I teach high school. I love teaching high school. And I don't know uh, if people who teach at college might have other experiences, but uh, quite often there tends to be this sense that military history equals battles, equals tanks, equals guns, equals the very um, historic things that obviously make up military history. But I'm definitely in that camp of people who are like, no, military history isn't just about the things that people use to make war or even end wars if you're not understanding the people in the military, that's a huge miss. And um, I think women's history is a really important part of that. That said, it, gender history and queer history, I think also have important places in the conversation. And mine is definitely uh, about women's history and there are places I think where I might get into a little bit of gender history, um, but distinct from that, because I'm more interested in, um, women's specific experiences and how women's roles as 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 women were were created and constructed Um, because i was looking a lot at documents that were really specific to that they're not thinking about men in the same way and it's in the time period i think now today we could look back and we could do some of that analysis of masculinity in the military and there's some great work being done on that um and the role that gender ideals play in the military um and and queer history in particular that's the other part that i i get to touch on a little bit because uh, it certainly fits in very well with looking at women's history but it's also the directions that that could take us as scholars and as people understanding the military are far beyond what i was able to do here if that makes sense i feel like i'm just sort of touching yeah. the door on a lot of
1: these well, i think it's i think it's centered in a it's centered in a different place in a different you know, different set of questions and a different set of intellectual concerns. Um, and I think to me, I really appreciate that sort of focus. Um, it was really nice to read a book about women and not, right. Not just have these like constant comparisons, um, to, to, to what the, to what the men were up to at the, at the same time, even though, you know, you bring those in when, when needed. I'm really interested to, to talk about dakowitz and let's, um, in part because so Dekowitz is the I'm gonna get the acronym wrong because I don't have it written down. Defense Advisory Commission on Women in the Service, is that so close. Oh, committee. Defense
0: Advisory Committee. You committee, got it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Committee. All right. So Dakowitz is formed in nineteen fifty-five and it is an advisory committee to the DOD. Uh and so I'd like for you to, to sort of tell us a little bit about this. And the the reason I sort of really picked up on this chapter is because Dekowitz along with like 41 other advisory commissions and committees got sort of wound down in, in 2021. Uh, Secretary of defense Austin said, we're going to do an efficacy review. We're going to figure out what all these commissions and committees are doing. Uh, and so dakowitz sort of went away like this year. Um, but it, it has a really interesting role to play uh, in your, in your work. So I'm, I'm hoping you'll maybe talk about that in, in, and then speculate on on what the future of, of something like it might be.
0: Yes, this is one of my favorites, and I almost cut the chapter, which is oh, I'm really so glad surprising. You didn't. <laughs> um, it was originally, you know, all these, are just, I have 50-page versions of these, and this was literally a 50-pager that had to go. There's so much, some of it got moved. You, you know how that goes. You cut some, you move some. Um, it was something I restored uh, at the beginning of 2019 when I was, do my last ditch effort to see if this could become a book and I'm so glad I did um it, I stumbled across it it was literally one of those things like what what the heck's going on here and um and it, uh I've always I've always I have to say I've always called it Dakowitz but because i have never had anybody who oh it may be I have no idea so, cool I have no idea either so either way I think we're good um, somebody write us this, a comment
1: and tell us tell us yes. which one it
0: is please tell us um i have been fascinated by this this was my side project detective story essentially because um this was a committee where i could get lists of who was on the committee in any given like i would find a list and i find another list and the names would change periodically but because it's the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s they're always listed as mrs john smith mrs robert einstein so figuring out who these women were i I have an entire spreadsheet but i still to this day i will see a name and go i think i know that name i need to look this up so i'm still adding to my list so if anybody knows past members of dakowitz or was related to them or has any information contact me because i'm still interested (laughs) but it was Um, It turned out they were building on an idea from World War II when they used civilian women to try to promote women's military service and women's volunteerism in general. So when this comes about in the early 50s, they pull some of those original women. They're like, look, we want military service to be something that is acceptable. To rephrase, we want women's military service to be acceptable to Americans. And what better way to do that than to get some of the most prominent women who are around. Um, We're talking like, uh, Rockefellers and, um, physicians and civic leaders and women who have big names in their communities, but also some of them nationally. And let's bring these women in because people will respect what they have to say and we'll take, we'll have them learn about women's service and they will take tours of bases. They will talk to women, um, On the ground, so to speak, Uh, they will also advise us in the Department of Defense on what to do about women because we really don't know what to do with to do about women. Um, So they do this, and it is, I think, not always successful because it relies very much on the women who are chosen have to engage and be part of this. But the records that you can find, there are women who are then going out and giving talks in local civic organizations. They're organizing things that might now seem a little strange like fashion shows of military women in uniforms Mm -hmm. but they're bringing women into the community so that young girls and i say young girls i really mean teenage girls can see here's a job opportunity that you can do and this looks really good i mean those uniforms look pretty darn good. They're pretty <laughs> sharp before <laughs> they're really nice. Before we like obliterate
1: all of the sharpness in the in the eighties. Yes,
0: <laughs> they're 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 kind of gorgeous. They're designed by um, by fashion designers in the mid twentieth century. So um, it really does for for young women who are looking for a place to belong. They try to capitalize on that. Um, the Department of Defense kind of gets more than they anticipate because <laughs> some of these women are like, all right. Well, let's talk real now. If you want to keep women, you got to have good housing. you got to have good benefits. Um, We need to work on this, this, and this. So they push back time and again. And they're like, you really need to think about this thing. And sometimes you read their records and you see them talking about housing and you think, is this really a big deal? And then you think about it some more and think, well, yeah women have good housing, they're in to stay. They talk about expanding ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps for women, because that didn't exist. They start talking about combat. They talk about whether women should be mm-hmm. allowed to serve uh, their mothers. So um, they start these conversations that a lot of times don't go anywhere, but sometimes they do. And I think that what's important with them is they keep the conversation going. They become that little thorn in the DOD's side, like, hey, Look, women are here. They have needs, and what are you going to do about them? Um, and so, sometimes you
1: can see them sort of anticipating, like they're just they're they're early in the in the yeah. conversation, and so we, we might push the conversation about combat down the road or service academies and all sorts of things. Um, but we can we can see dakowitz as as almost like a, a sort of canary, right in the in the yes. proverbial coal mine about identifying issues and and really bringing them to the to the forefront in a, in a really interesting, like, elite culture advocacy and policy, like nexus. Um, yeah. That I, I just, I just think it's fascinating. So I'm super glad that the chapter is there. I think it's worth the price of the book. Um, just, just for that, for that sort of exploration of that. Um, I'd, I'd love to know what in your book what surprised you the most or what thing sort of went against the grain of your hunch or intuition, you know, when you started, where's a place where the documents took you in a different direction?
0: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And, and some of it I think has to do with my lack of understanding and, and just acquiring more information as I went, right. Just uh, trying to understand. um, So, so for example, to be totally blunt, I did not anticipate learning as much as I did about um, the history of, of um, gays and lesbians in the military because I never thought about this. It was just not I come from a very um, traditional white middle class christian family essentially um so coming into my research i had never studied queer history i did not read d'amelio until graduate school i didn't read any other scholars um so i i just i had no background and so coming into reading these discussions about oh no there could be lesbians in the military on the one hand i was like why are you worried about that on the other hand i was like huh okay I, i just it was not something that had ever registered to me as a big Deal, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So for me, I learned a whole lot in under uncovering these conversations. So I, I know we've done this podcast before, but um, the transgender marriage case that was a huge moment for me. I almost passed over the folder. It was whack marriage case. I am like, okay, wax are getting married. What's the big deal? I opened it, and it was this moment of oh, I it just. I learned so much and explored so many ideas that I just didn't even know about the world. And that seems really maybe elementary in a lot of ways, but I think that's one of the things about going to graduate school and and studying history is that um, the ways in which you learn about the world and change your worldview, Mm -hmm. really, I'm learning about these women's lives and the things that matter to them and it changes who I am as well, if that
1: So nice. no, that's a pretty that's a pretty powerful like statement about what it's like to be a historian um, and to to look at these documents from a different time and place and to really try to like to live in the mental world of other people um and I think it's it's really challenging and it's one of my you know one of my favorite things uh, to do was to read documents right because they, they yes. teach us so much about the about the world and I think about the world we live in today yeah. Um, Oh man, time flies. I'm going to ask one more, one more yeah. question. Um, so Tanya, you teach at an independent school. So you're a, you're a K-12, you're a high school teacher. Um, and so some people would call that a hashtag alt act career. You're off the tenure track. You're not in a university. Um, and in a lot of ways, book publishing is, it's hard in any circumstance, but it is made for University professors and sort of in this in this world, and so I'd like for you to tell us uh, if you're if you're willing, uh, what was it like to to publish a, a book with a, a great academic press uh, off the tenure track, and and what was it like to move this book from dissertation to uh, to book.
0: I I love thinking about this. It is one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I also think of it as a really big accomplishment. Um, when I finished my PhD, I, I immediately moved into this career field for a number of reasons. And uh, some of my friends in graduate school said, oh, so your book won't come out. And spent, I spent—I read a, really, a lot of really good dissertations when I was working on this project that never became books. And I remember thinking, it's not going to be me. I'm going to tell this story because I think it's an important one. One of the upsides, I think, to publishing off the tenure track is that I didn't have the same, my, my awareness of this timeline towards tenure, right? The, I didn't have anybody telling me I had to get this done in order to meet certain professional goals. Uh, I think my book is much better because of the time it took. I graduated 10 years ago with my PhD. So it literally took a decade for this book to come out. And I didn't work on it the entire time. I left it alone for a couple of years and then I Mm -hmm. started to play with it. And that time for me, I'm, I'm, I'm huge with revision. Revision is really important to me. Uh, The conclusion of this book looked totally different last January when I got the copy edits and then it (laughs) just kind of evolved in the course of three weeks. Um, So uh, it was incredibly hard because uh, for anybody who is thinking about doing this, I would absolutely recommend find a writing group. I think I could have found one. I didn't have one. I didn't have anybody to. I had uh, a friend who we did look at some our materials. We talked regularly, very early in the process. We were kind of doing two very different things. She wasn't looking to publish a book, she was working on some other projects, but I could bounce ideas off of her a little bit. But I didn't really have someone who I could send drafts of chapters to regularly, for example, or to talk really in depth with about the structure or what I was doing. It was a lot of me just trying things out. And honestly, it never occurred to me to reach out to say my advisor to say, hey, would you be willing to read something? So I would try that differently if I did it <laughs> if I did it, had it to do it over again, um, I would develop that network. But I think for me, one of the biggest thing is, if you remember imposter syndrome from graduate school, um, I was convinced for a long time that nobody would ever want it to, anybody in academic publishing would not want this book because I'm not a professor. And honestly, the marketing questionnaires you get when the book goes to publish, they want to know, like, who are your colleagues that would be interested in this book? And I'm like, I don't have any people who would be assigning this book. Um, So uh, there was a little bit of that imposter syndrome, but um, it was a lot of persistence. I tried some non-academic publishing and got a lot of, oh, we're interested, but you need platform. So... I turned back to academic publishing, uh, kind of scared to death over it. Um, and then I was, I was just so fortunate. I, I took a chance with the society for military history, Kaufman prize in 2019 thinking, okay, maybe I'll get like an honorable mention. And then I could say to academic presses, Hey, I have an honorable mention. I, I won it, which was amazing. And then the U- university of North Carolina press then took a look and said, okay, we like this. Um, so That was, that was just incredible. I I feel so fortunate that somehow I was able to get get this to that point. Um, But but it's really hard. I mean, writing is always hard, but it was a lot of, um, you know, writing around my young son, but also I coach mock trials. So I would go uh, for about six months, I would sit down for an hour or two at the end of the day from 9pm to 11pm and just writing, editing, and then keep going and then when it came time to give my editor this manuscript uh in february of 2020 i said oh i'll have it you by beginning of (laughs) april i have spring break and then my son's school got called off and it was early june so you know you know how that goes i know there's so many people have those stories (laughs) (laughs)
1: trying just imagining trying to do that right move all your classes to remote like probably like basically homeschool your child like all of that in the middle Um, I think it's a real testament to the, to the persistence and to the, to the importance of the story. And I'm really glad that the folks at uh, UNC press, uh, picked it up. Um, but I think, right, that, that story of like the mix of persistence and luck is the story of so many of our, uh, our careers, right? right. Uh, but making, you know, walking through the doors that are in front of you and, and sort of taking the opportunities as they come, um, Tanya, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that 30 minutes is already up. I love it. <laughs> um, and so it's been a real delight to talk to you. Uh, as the podcast comes to a close, I'd like to, of course, thank Tanya Roth for joining us here at Warring. Thank you so much for having me. I have really enjoyed this so much. Uh, and I'd like to thank all of you, our listeners out there as well. Please send us your comments on this podcast or others. And we'd love to hear suggestions or ideas for future topics. We're always interested in hearing from you. If you've not already done so, I hope you'll subscribe to War Room via our website, which will put updates and content directly in your inbox, and you can also subscribe to a better piece on the podcatcher of your choice. If you would, rate and review the podcast, that'll help other people find us as well. We look forward to having you all again with us soon, and until next time from War Room, I'm Jackie Witt.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.